Hi everyone, Raphael Harry here, and you're listening to White Label American, a podcast where we hear stories from an immigrant or two, sometimes more. Thank you for listening and enjoy the show. Welcome to another episode of White Label American. Thank you all for joining us today. Shout out to all our people on the front lines, our healthcare workers, our delivery drivers, and our lovely people fighting for our rights. Wherever you may be in the United States and all over the world, we are with you. I'm sending out love and appreciation for the good things you are doing. I have a very wonderful person today in the studio well she's in the studio virtually and um you know life brings people your way every now and then and you know and we got to meet recently not long ago and it was just by by you know um the universe brought us together in its own unique way and i'm honored to introduce someone who you know you just see a comment and you're like, hmm, do I take it serious or do I not? You know, and I was like, why not? Yeah, let's talk. And from that, I was like, wow, most definitely we have to bring this person onto the podcast. So without much further ado, I introduced someone who's a bilingual public speaker and multi-industry marketer, a veteran, and she'll be telling us what branch she's, she belongs to. She's also an author, an entrepreneur, and a mentor. And that's just scratching the surface. You know, it's like the tip of the iceberg. And she, she, she's uh, a woman who's part of the uh, military veteran leaders. She's um, the champions of change. And she's someone who we need because she, she represents not just diversity, but she represents forward thinking and the most important, one of the most important words that I've learned in 2020, Latino vating, which I'll take with me to the day I die. This is the woman behind that word. So without much further ado, I introduce Graciela Tiscareno Sato. I said it right. Yeah, it's Spanish, Spanish, Japanese, a little bit different. Graciela Tiscareño Sato. Well done, Rafael. Tiscareño. Yeah, I forgot to twist the tongue a little bit. Tiscareño. Yes. yes. <laughs> so welcome on the show. And uh, how are you doing today, Graciela? I'm well. I'm happy to be here. And, you know, I have to tell you right off the bat, I, I love the name of your show and I love everything about it. So, Thank you. I salute you for what you're putting together. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. It's uh, always nice to hear that. And But I don't think people want to hear about me. People want to hear about you. So let, let's dive in. Let's dive in. Um, so can you introduce us to where you were born and um, the beginning of your, your journey? Yeah. So, you know, as you reflect on the accident of birth and how where you popped out of your mom kind of sets things in motion for your life and you had nothing to do with it. I was barely born here. I was born 
less than a quarter mile north of the border between Ciudad Juarez in Mexico and El Paso in Texas. So my parents met in Juarez and my father was working in El Paso and they'd gotten married and moved just a little bit over the border. And my dad literally walked back and forth, you know, to work. And so I was born less than a quarter mile. I like to think, like, think about that less than one lap around the track. Wow, that, that's a beautiful border, way of describing right? like, Yeah, like that, that close. So uh, it really starts there. And then I think about, you know, what if I born on the other side? What would my life be? Right. It's mm-hmm. really like, wow, like what is a border anyway? Right. That's so true. that's where my story starts in, in El Paso, Texas. I'm the daughter of uh, Art and Tina, who are um, Mexican immigrants from the great state of Chihuahua. Chihuahua. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Um, have you ever seen the show Taste of the Nation? Taste of the Nation. Is that the Netflix one? No, it's on uh, Hulu with uh, okay, no, the I, chef uh, Pad- Padma, Padma Lux- Luxma. I think that's how to say her name. I think I, butch- I butchered her name. Padma Lakshmi. Lux- Lakshmi. Yes. Okay. Yeah. She sounds uh, Indian? Yes, she's, a, she's of yeah. Indian. Uh, she's an Indian immigrant. And... Uh, she, in Taste of the Nation, it's each episode is of a, a different community that defines America. So the very first episode was in El Paso. And wow. it had that, it, it described literally your, your parents, the, yeah. the people who walk in El Paso but live in, uh, who cross the border, coming to work yeah. every day. Yeah. And it was, it, 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 each episode has something different because they show you different communities in America. That, But yeah. it, it's like trying to show America by food. And you're showing how America loves their food, but right. not really the people behind the food per se. But the El Paso okay. episode, was, which is the very first episode that starts the, 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 the first season, it mm-hmm. opens a whole different door to uh lovers of burrito because i love burritos and you see a whole different type of burrito but it it now adds a different story to the people who brought the burrito who give you the burrito and you see them crossing the border because everybody gets burritos everywhere in america but you don't see that story of the people who walk in these places who have to cross the border every day coming to work and some people who they walk for are not really people who Want, who like who, who voted for them to have the rights to even come to work there, which is the crazy part of it because they show it in the documentary and and then some of them have come into that realization like um yeah my vote didn't my yeah my I'm, I'm it's killing my business affecting my business now and I'm like wow so this is what it took you to realize <laughs> yeah but it, it, it's a beautiful show it, it, there's a lot of educational stuff in there that people take for granted and it's good to see it because it humanizes a whole lot of um, the, the picture. Like when people are saying they want to build a wall, like what, what you have to ask yourself, yeah, you want to build a wall to stop your burritos, but you want to right. eat burritos, right? You, you're living around there, but you want to eat burritos, but you want to, you want to still build a wall and who's, right. who's going to make your burritos then? And the question right. is like that. So, well, you, you know, I was I was in El Paso in summer of 2016 before the election when all that wall talk was happening. Mm-hmm. And I'd gone down there with my husband and my three kids. And my husband's Japanese. And we have these three biracial Asian Latinos. 
And we were taking a trip. My parents are in El Paso. They moved back after living in Colorado and Washington. They moved back to, to El Paso. So they were celebrating their 50th wedding anniversary. And so we went into Mexico one day to go shopping. Another day we took a bus to Chihuahua. So we were traveling and we were showing our kids, you know, like this is where I was born. And it's, it's really, it's a multicultural city there because you're as likely to find, you know, fish and sushi burritos and flautas and the whole fusion or, you know, Chinese flavors in your chile rellenos. Or, oh, yeah. <laughs> because, because there's a lot of people from Japan and China and South America that live in Juarez and then they come. So it is a very eclectic place. And, you know, when we were coming back across the border, I'm like, do you see, like, there's no way you'll ever have a wall here because there's just too much connectedness of humanity mm -hmm. of food of yeah. vendors of goods you know like we need each other like exactly anybody talking about it just you literally haven't been here so you don't know you think it's like some faraway planet right mm -hmm. but it's not it's a very american city and and yeah it's it starts there so i might have to go check out that show now yeah it's, I want it's, to... it's a beautiful show uh, yeah every episode just opens up a whole community and you're like yeah this is Something that I, I think it can be taught in schools. You can use the show to teach in schools and sure. it, yeah, it opens people's eyes to everything. So okay. still staying in El Paso, um, what was your childhood like? I know you've given some um and you've given an insight into some of it, even though it's from your adult um life. But what was childhood like and what would you consider your favorite childhood memory? Oh, wow. Well, you know, as soon as I was born there, my father got a job in Arizona. So I, we didn't stay in El Paso. You know, okay. I was born there, got a job. My dad's a, a tailor. That was his profession. So he got a job in uh, Tucson, Arizona, Tucson in Spanish. Yeah, yeah. So we, oh, we went to Arizona and apparently I hated the desert. Like I just didn't <laughs> do well. I was always sick. I was a sick baby. So my parents then went to the other extreme. Instead of hot, they went to cold and they moved to Colorado. And oh, my wow. dad always worked in, you know, fine men's clothing stores and mm -hmm. shopping malls. Of course, they're building shopping malls. So we ended up in Colorado and that's really where I grew up. And that is where my four younger siblings were born. So childhood memories, I, I'll tell you one of my favorite childhood memories. We had um, the house that they bought, like the first time they ever bought a house. It was in Evans, Colorado. And so, you know, imagine your typical tract housing, right? So you've yep. got a street with all these houses that look the same and they're like, you know, one level in a basement. And so we actually bought a house, Rafael, on the third street of this development, which was going to be like, you know, 20 streets. So we got in pretty early. And one of my favorite memories is, is for years watching all these houses get built on the next block and the next block and the next block and visiting the construction site with my siblings after the construction workers went home. Ah. I'm like, oh, here's a pile of wood. <laughs> and so we would drag this wood home. I get a, hey, puppy, check it out. And I have these two by fours and they're like four inches, four feet long. And, <laughs> and we'd find, you know, plywood and we would, you know, it's just a junk pile. So we yeah. just take it with us. And the reason I'm remembering this with your question is because we ended up just building things like, well, you know, let's make a little tiny picnic table, like a kid-sized picnic table or a little footstool, or we'll use the wood to make a planter for your mom for the tomatoes. And so we have this unlimited supply of construction materials. 
And so my childhood was nails, hammers, learning to use a saw and like really just building um, like uh, we built a little candy store. My dad even built a candy store so my sister and I could start selling candy out of our driveway. Wow. So we did entrepreneurship very yeah. early. We learned to go buy Tootsie Rolls for, you know, two cents and sell them for a nickel. And so we literally like we built with all the slumber, a little candy store. And I remember my dad paint, it was blue. My dad painted Selena and Grace's candy store. And it was like, you know, Charlie Brown, the cartoon with the, mm -hmm. you know, psychology help five cents. It would look like that. <laughs> um, and so that's a really cool memory of just always building things and being creative and what could we make with this stuff, right? And, and then also, you know, how that became um, a little storefront so that we could, you know, buy some candy and make some profit and bring candy to the neighborhood. So those, all of that was wrapped up in that, that that early constructed neighborhood that provided us hours of fun and creativity. Wow, that, that's so beautiful to hear because it's amazing how, you know, I don't even know how I came up with the favorite childhood memory, but it, in time I came to realize that there's something about people always bringing that, answering that question that shows what they are doing now and you can tie, you can, you can, Put, you, you can you know you can see the thread of the connection of like oh from their favorite childhood memory you can start seeing that this is who that person was you know it started long time ago and you know and yeah. it's interesting that now that you're saying this i'm like wow you know you're an entrepreneur now you you, you build a whole lot of stuff in different ways and you, you have you, your creative spirits it's, it's always that you're a very creative person and it's just fascinating to see all that coming from you now, and it's like, wow, you see, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's why I just love asking that question because it's, it's always a great beautiful. That it's a what really people good give, question. yeah, it's beautiful it because a there's a lot of times people don't realize that they've always had it in them for a long time, and you know, yeah, yeah sometimes we need people to remind us and all that. But I, I just hope that when people listen and hear this answers to these questions and they're like yeah I've, I've always had it in me and you know they can look back and say yes me too and you know i've, I've had it and dig deep and you know don't, don't always feel down because i knew how i grew up and that's one if i had known if i'd realized that I, I had it in me i probably would have been yeah maybe a little bit different person to who i am today but i'm not i don't regret it but <laughs> well you know when we talk about latinovating i'm going to yeah. tell you something that i have learned in interviewing a lot of people from the latino community as it relates to that the childhood experience because there's a very real connection with how you how you see your ability to create mm -hmm. what you're encouraged to do and who ends up taking those risks to become an entrepreneur. There's a direct connection that I've discovered after many, many interviews. So I can talk about that later, but yeah, that's um, it's a very real thing that it's there. And for people who haven't already thought about that, that maybe that is a way they can reflect on something that's always been there. And then maybe they can use that to launch another chapter in their life that they've been thinking about doing, but they've been hesitating yeah. because they'll realize that it, it's already there. You just have to draw upon it and then really use it to go forward. So yeah, for sure. So now from your, um, from your childhood, favorite childhood memory, we've discovered the creative 
business, the entrepreneurship, building things. It sounded like you had that didn't just stop. I don't, I don't have the feeling that you just stopped there. It seems to be like that was part that became a part of you going forward. And then later in life, well, now I'm going to jump a little bit forward. And then later in life, or well, not too far ahead, you will make a big decision to join the military. Was that, could we, could we say that's part of the creative part? Or you know, could that also be considered part of the creativeness? Or could that also be considered part of the building things as an inspiration? Yeah, no, I, I see the connection. It's, it's okay. So when you're a kid and you have access to all this wood and nails and your dad's willing to give you a hammer and a saw, the question is always, how can we build a fill in the blank? Okay, it's not that you can't, or mm -hmm. it's not that it's impossible. It's like, you know, you're going to build it, right? So you get used to say, well, how can we build a picnic table? Do we have enough wood, right? What do we need, right? And it's that mindset that when it came time to go to college and we didn't have money for college, okay? It was that same problem solving and always creating solutions thinking that led me to go into my counselor's office all the time and never believe what other people in my community believed, which was that college was out of reach or that people like us don't go to college. I never believed that because my mind always asked, how can I? And so I would go and say, hey, how can I go to college? Because my best friends, you know, are all from communities that, um, you know, <laughs> their parents have college degrees. They go to Austria, France, and Hawaii for vacation. You know, we pile into a car and drive to Chihuahua. So they were having a much more, um, you know, like their houses were fancier. They took nice vacations. And as a teenager, I started noticing that. And so I wanted that. And so the question came back to how can I, how can I build a way to college? How can I do it? And again, that question, Raphael, is rooted in knowing that it's possible. Mm. Not, not ever believing that it's not possible. It's like it, you, you start like we did as kids building whatever we were building, understanding that we could. Yeah. And now we just got to learn how. And so my dad, of course, would coach us on how to put stuff together and how to make things stronger. So in this case, in high school, is my high school counselor. And I said, how does a kid like me with younger siblings from a big family, how, how, do, how does somebody like me go to college? Because I want to go. And here's the amazing thing. You know, you said earlier when we talked, the universe brings us together with people. Yes. So my high school counselor's husband was an Air Force major. Oh. And so I would avoid the recruiters in the cafeteria because I knew I wanted to go to college. And if I talked to them that that wasn't they're going to take me. <laughs> so, so I, cause I, I didn't know anything about the military. Remember I'm a daughter of immigrants. I knew yeah. nothing. I only knew what people said. Oh yeah. They're here to talk to kids to go to the military. I'm like, well, I want to go to college. So my counselor said, come to my house for dinner. My husband's family was even bigger than yours. He's from Appalachia. And instead of five kids, they had eight. Wow. So come to my house for dinner. My husband will tell you how he went to college. And that's the miracle. At her house, I met Major Wendell Burgess, who was an active duty Air Force major. And he is the one who said, yeah, if you want to go to college, you know, do what I did. 
and get, you know, apply for the Air Force ROTC program. It pays for four years of college, et cetera, et cetera, you know, to any university that has a program or, you know, that that's near a university that has a program. So he basically held my hand through the application process for the four-year ROTC scholarship from the Air Force. And my counselor helped me with the college application part, because again, my parents didn't know anything about how to do any of that. Mm. So my, my path to the Air Force was really started. And I know one of your questions was why the Air Force, right? Is because her husband happened to be an Air Force major. He'd been a Marine. If he'd been in the Navy like you, right? I would have gone there. But the, the person that was put in my path to mentor yeah. me happened to be an Air Force guy. And that was that was it. I mean, it's it's not complicated, but it's awesome because he's exactly who I needed yes. to, to start that. And I got my letter to Berkeley and my letter telling me that I've been awarded the scholarship. Um, in February of my senior year. So like on the same day, I knew that I got into Cal Berkeley and I knew that I had the four-year scholarship to pay for it, which made my mother cry. And it wasn't tears of joy. Like she couldn't believe I actually found a way, you know, to to move far away, Mm -hmm. a thousand miles away (laughs) um, and go to college, which she wanted me to go to college and stay home. Yeah. Yeah, I had I had other plans. <laughs> <laughs> but do you see the connection? Yes. How can I? Mm-hmm. Not okay. is it possible or they tell me I can't. No. How can I? That is that is the question that has powered my entire life. How can I fill in the blank? Mm. That's powerful. That's a very good one again. Thanks for sharing that. That's good. Yeah. See, you're full, you're full of beautiful gems. That's why I knew how to bring you here. So, um, you served at a period where there were um, where there were plenty of um, hurdles for where the hurdles for women were much higher in comparison to what's available today. There are still hurdles. Not like, not saying it's not difficult for women in the military, but during your time, uh, it's you know I mean, probably I'm assuming that you know there was still that. Ah, women should, you know, go more to the desk jobs, you know, clerical jobs, you know, not, you know, we we shouldn't see them in the field. And you went into a field that um, around that time wouldn't have been known for women. So what pushed you into that field? So my scholarship was awarded to me with the intention of my degree, which was to be environmental design and architecture. So it's like a art degree, but it's a technical degree because you have to do some civil engineering. So again, I know nothing. I'm just following what the major is saying. And he's like, well, just tell it what you want to study. And, you know, it's, it's a good, it's a good field. So I thought that I would finish my degree and then I owed four years of service, right? So what do you do with an architecture degree in the military? Well, obviously you work in civil engineering, but I didn't know that, right? I just thought, well, they gave me a scholarship so they know where I'm supposed to work. So then two years in, uh, what's really cool, and I wish that all young people had something like this, Two years in, the Air Force actually took us during the summer ROTC camp 
which is the closest officers ever get to basic, they took us to different bases to meet um, officers doing different careers. So we met the meteorology officer in base operations. We met the operation support that runs, you know, everything with the airfield and the airport. We met the civil engineering squadron. And so that's where I thought I'd be working. So I was so excited. I actually get to meet somebody in that role. And she was a lieutenant. And she she heard me and she's like, oh, you think you're going to design buildings? And she's laughing. She's like, you're not going to design anything. We just fill potholes when the generals call. I'm like, what? What do you mean? <laughs> she's like, no, you don't design. I'm like, well, I have an architecture degree. She's like, no. I'm like, what about the new hospital they're building over there? She goes, nope, we contract that out to civilian architects. I'm like, oh. So I was realizing like a lot of young people Mm -hmm. who start studying something, but they've never met anybody doing it, that I was romanticizing this profession. Mm. I didn't know anything, right? So it was an amazing wake up call. And thank goodness that the very next day, they flew us to a pilot training base. So we could go meet the rated officers and the pilot trainees. I mean, it is the Air Force, right? Yes. So now we're in uh, Williams Air Force Base in Arizona, and they had told us the day before, if you want to fly, just sign up for an orientation flight. Everybody that wants to fly can go up. Already there was people who didn't want to fly. They knew they wanted to go do civil engineering or missiles or something, right? I was like, oh my God, give me something else because I don't want to do potholes. (laughs) (laughs) I don't want to do engineering on a base. So I'm like, yeah, sign me up. So I signed up for an orientation flight. Okay. The time here is, let me think. This is now seven years after the Air Force has even allowed women to go to pilot training. That's how early this was. Wow. We're only in the seventh year when they've even allowed women to officially go fly. Okay. Now, never mind that women flew every Air Force plane in the inventory during World War II, right? Never mind that reality. Mm. They still waited 33 years before letting women officially become, you know, aviators. So I'm going into this on the seventh year. So very, very early on, but there was already a female instructor pilot there. So guess what? They paired me with her. So I, my first time ever in an airplane, I swear, this is a true story. My first time ever in an airplane, remember I didn't take trips to Europe with my family, right? So my very first time in an airplane is in this military jet, the T-37 tweet, the trainer with this female pilot. And so I just thought it was like a roller coaster ride. It was, you know, kick of the pants. It was so much fun. I was an adrenaline junkie. So, you know, she's talking to me, she's letting me fly, she's teaching me how to do alien rolls and everything. And I just think it's a hoot. I'm just like loving it. It's so much fun. Um, never in that entire flight did I think, wow, I can do this. And it never entered my mind. I just was joyriding. Okay. But when we landed and we're taxing back, she says, you know, you're the first one that I've flown today that didn't throw up. Because a lot of people just got yeah, that. Like, that was good to be, be part pilots, of my question. Right? <laughs> they think they want to be fighter pilots yeah. and then they get in a hot plane and then they throw up. She goes, you're the first one that hasn't thrown up. And she's like, you, you know, did you enjoy it? I'm like, yeah, this is great. She's like, well, have you, have you considered this something you can do? I'm like, what? And I said, no, I have an architecture degree. And so I start telling her this whole thing. He's like, no, that's just your academic major. This is the Air Force. If you want to fly, go back and tell the staff you want to fly. 
And then she told me there's a board and then there's pilot training and navigator training and you wear wings and there's all these different jobs. Mm -hmm. So she literally just mentored me as we taxied back. So by the time we got back, I was like, I'm going to look into flying because I don't want to do potholes for generals. Right. Yeah. So that's literally how I ended up in this moment where someone's saying, hey, you should go fly and going, yeah, I, I should go do that. <laughs> so it, it's a crazy story, but you know, it, it's important. And these details are important because if you want your life to be different than where you came from, yeah. you have to be willing to put yourself in a totally different environment where these things can even happen, right? Like going to university 1100 miles away, like signing up for the orientation flight, just to see why not, right? So that's literally how I ended up going then, you know, I, I got selected for navigator training. Uh, you go back and there's a board process, which meant that, um, you know, they offer it to you. They say, okay, you know, pilot training, nine, nine years total, navigator training, seven years total. So my commitment of four years to the Air Force, I get to decide if I want to go fly, it's going to cost more money to train me. So now I have to sign it for more years. And I said, bring it. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Let's do this. I'm going to go fly, you know? Um, and, and that's literally the crazy story of how it happened. It's like, I, I can't even believe it. And, you know, you asked about, um, about obstacles. So I want to say this. Um, you get to the training class and there's 32 people starting. And I was one woman in the class of 32. Wow. So I show this photo of our graduation where there's 24 of us because not everybody graduates. Usually mm -hmm. like a quarter of the class washes out, right? Yeah. So at graduation, we've got 23 guys and me. And it's very stark because I wore my skirt on purpose, right? Um, but the thing is that there was no discrimination there because everybody there had to go through the same selection process to get there right? They had to be you know, their physical fitness scores, their academics in college, their, their major, do they have the ability to learn technical concepts? So by the time you arrive, Raphael, in flight training, yeah. everybody there knows you're supposed to be there. So yeah, I was the only woman, but it didn't matter. Everybody knew I was supposed to be there just like they were supposed to be there. And I emphasize that because, you know, young girls get really intimidated when I show this photo of like all these guys and me. And I'm like, I didn't have a problem with it. They didn't have a problem with it. Um, but the, the, the thing that did get dicey was uh, I selected um, the KC-135, the refueling jet. Okay. okay. Because even though I was graduating in like the top 10% of my class, so like, you know, the top, I don't know, three or four people, when I walked up to the microphone on assignment night to ask for my assignment, you know what I did? What? I requested the F-15 Strike Eagle. Wow. Just like the guy ahead of me and the guy ahead of me. And I walked up and said, <laughs> Lieutenant Discrito also requests F-15 Strike Eagle to Luke Air Force Base. And then the room went quiet because it's a meritocracy, right? Yeah. Number one, two, three, they choose. And the room went quiet. Like, oh, damn. Because now the colonel has to say in front of everybody, uh, Lieutenant Tuscarino, you know, I can't assign you that aircraft because, you know, the law, <laughs> women are not allowed in combat airplanes. I mean, like he had to say it, right? Everybody had to hear it. And then I said, yes, sir, I understand. I just want everybody to know that I qualified for that, you know, because that's what I do. I like, I want to make sure it gets set. Mm. And then I said, I'll take the KC-135 refueling tank. 
And that's how I ended up in the tankers. And then we watched the fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth person behind me all get their fighter jet assignments. So that's, that's the, not so much discrimination as it was that I legally was not able to get assigned to go there. Right. Mm-hmm. But then two years but, later, but how, how did that feel like at that moment to you? How did I feel? Yeah. At that moment. I, I felt, I felt like the airplane doesn't care about your gender, your, your sex at all. <laughs> the mm-hmm. really doesn't care. Those are artificial barriers put there by dudes to keep us out. And the guys are all just telling themselves that only they can do it. Right. Yeah. That was really obvious to me because, um, you know, it just was. And, you know, Amber, I had a female pilot at pilot training. So I already knew that she was flying not only that airplane, but she was also flying the T-38, which is basically like an F-5, another fighter. She was already flying supersonic jets. So it wasn't that women couldn't. It was that Congress, you know, representing the um, paternalistic views of American society didn't want to see their women in combat, even though, guess what? We were already there. That's right. right. Uh, but let's just make it official. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you suck it up and you go do the assignment that you get. Um, but then the real shock happened over Iraq after Desert Storm. And then it was Operation Southern Watch. So we were there patrolling the skies of southern Iraq to keep Saddam from launching his MiGs and killing his own people. Basically, we're preventing genocide, which is what he was doing. So we went in there to, to, to keep the MiGs on the ground and, and not let him kill his own people, right? Yep. The, the Southern no-fly zone. I was the third crew to go in to do that just after the war ended. So um, we flew combat sorties one, two, or three every day. And after I think 25 sorties, the Colonel then had the discretion to um, nominate a crew for an air medal you know, for air operations, mm-hmm. because yeah, we got chased by MIGs, AWACS would tell us there's a MIG coming and then we'd have to retrograde and get out of there. Enemy fire was expected. That's, that's the definition of the O1 sortie, right? Well, guess what happened? Our package went to the Pentagon with three other packages. You know, the first four crews had flown 37 sorties something. The package came back at our fan. air medal for this crew, air medal for this crew, air medal for that crew. So four medals for each air crew. And we got a letter for our crew that our crew could not receive an air medal because there was a female on the crew. Wow. So imagine yourself on a crew mm-hmm. that's already flown the 37 combat sorties. You already did it. Yeah. And now you as a guy can't get recognized because they put a woman on your plane. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me how this helps anybody's morale. I mean, that was so shocking to me. I was like, how did you like miss the fact that I'm not supposed to be here? Obviously you needed me to be here because you trained me and you sent me. Yes. And now you just don't want to admit that I did it by actually recognizing the work. And it could have died there. It could have been really sad that we didn't get an air medal. And, you know, my poor three guys on my crew also would get, you know, lose. But the colonel's like, this is ridiculous. You know, uh, he appealed it. He sent the package back to the Pentagon. And something like, I don't know, seven months after we redeployed back home, we finally got our air medals sent to our base. And we had the ceremony and I got my air medal 
And it means a lot to me because of everything I'm telling you. And I have to tell you, this, this, the flying happened August of 92. Congress changed the law allowing women to be in combat and combat assignments and combat airplanes in the following year in the spring of 93. So I got this air medal, you know, like basically like they were deciding at the Pentagon whether or not to give it to our crew as the law was changing. And so they finally felt safe that they could give it because the law was going to change, right? If the law hadn't changed, I don't think we would have gotten the medal. Um, But I recently confirmed with the Air Force Personnel Center that uh, this whole crazy story I just told you, I'm the first Hispanic female aviator in the in the Air Force to earn an air medal for combat air operations. I didn't know that. Um, Somebody asked that question. So I I asked the question of the personnel center, but that's how crazy it was, you know? So I don't know. It was never as much a discrimination as it was what was allowed and wasn't allowed, but I'm happy that I was there and I saw the transformation happen. And then I've seen since the law changed, I've just seen women run straight ahead into combat billets, graduate top of their class and fly everything there is. And then they go on to become colonels and generals, right? Yeah, which is proof that it was just the artificial um, wall that was just holding them back. Well, the artificial wall created by the dudes who yeah. really kept telling because themselves they could, they could that have been doing this all this time. They could do it. Exactly. Yeah. And I'm just so happy that it happened in my life and I got to see the change. And I'm then I've been too. able to see all these women mm-hmm. just do it, right? And just fly every airplane. And I still want my F-15 ride. <laughs> oh, yeah. You you, you, they, you deserve one. They should give you an F-15 ride. I'm surprised. And it's, they never give you that. Our, yeah, How about those planes being recalled? At this point. What was that? Are they still flying the F-15s? Yeah, not so much. There's I, I thought they moved to the F-35. Them, units, it's, it's the 35s now. Yeah, yeah. the 35s. Yeah. Hell, you know, put me on an F-18 or an F-22, F-35, whatever. You know, I'll take anything. Yeah, you, just, de- you, you really deserve one. You, you, you're part of um, American military history. So, yeah, you deserve to fly one. So. Yeah, so I need to go on that quest. I need to go do that. <laughs> Yeah, but that that's very inspiring, and I, I hope um, many people, not just only those in the military, can take um, and learn from that and see that it, it they they have it to to move forward. And you know, like uh, when you mentioned uh, that many young women are intimidated when they see your photo when you um, graduated. I'm like, I'm, I'm, it's not just young women. I probably would have been intimidated too if I've just seen that first. You know, <laughs> when we first met, I would have been like, oh. Because, uh, yeah, I remember someone was telling me, oh, uh, one of my distant cousins who's, um, he's a general in, in Nigeria, and he, he, he wanted, he, as soon as he heard that I joined the Navy, he was like, oh, go start flying a plane. I was like, um, yeah, I don't, I don't think, you know, my, my confidence wasn't that high then. <laughs> Well, that's what it started is, back right? then. Yeah. Yeah. You, you have to have the confidence. I mean, and that's it. Like, because, you know. But if, it, I, if I had known someone like you, if I'd known your, your story, I probably would have, it would have been different. But I just, yeah, yeah, the examples that I had wasn't what inspired me to see that I could put myself in that. Like, I could, I couldn't inspire myself with the examples that I had. So 
I was just like, nah, I'm I'm good in where where I was. I mean, I enjoyed the job that I did, but I, mm-hmm. I was like, yeah, I, if if because if if I like if, like if there was something that took us around too without opportunity to talk to people um, in other jobs, because I only spoke to one person before signing up, and he did supply also, and he didn't. He didn't even give me any information about supply. Well, let, let that be a lesson that both of us can share with listeners, yeah. right? If you have teenagers who are thinking about joining the military, please, please, please encourage them to reach out and find veterans who have done a variety of skills oh, yeah. so that they don't romanticize it or follow just the one thing because of what they say. Like, you know, find out, find people. We mm-hmm. can tell you what it was really like to do that. And then you'll know and you can make a more informed decision um, because I think that's the key. And now we have the internet tools to be able to find people, right? Yeah. To, to I, actually, so I've, I've, I've done that for a, a few people who've reached out to me. Someone, there's someone who I've never met who reached out to me just before, even before I got out of the Navy, I, I started doing that. He reached out to me before I deployed to Bahrain and he said he saw my, I commented on a public forum, but my profile picture on old Facebook then was I was in uniform and he understood that I was Nigerian born because I wrote in um, I wrote in a Nigerian language. So mm-hmm. he he just arrived in the United States and he said he was thinking about the military and navy and um, but he didn't know anybody. So I was like, okay, I'll do what nobody did for me. So I told him about my job and um, asked him what his interests were and he told me his interests. I was like, ah, oh, you know what? I know like two, three people who are in those fields and I said, talk to them. So I introduced him to those people. And then a few months later, he made up his mind and yeah, I think he's still in, he's still probably in. Yeah. See, there you go. See, it's, it's, it's just in telling our stories that others are watching and they might decide to check it out because you showed up. And mm-hmm. I think that's the best thing that we can do. Yeah, it is. That's very powerful. So um, you already mentioned going to Iraq and uh, w- was that the only f- foreign country that, uh, that was that the only place you went to overseas? Oh no. <laughs> That's the beautiful part, right? That, you know, remember when I was talking about my friends who went on vacations to yeah. France and Austria, that's all I ever wanted. I wanted to go see other places in the world. Right. And so, yeah, my first trip was to Saudi Arabia, but we went through England first, through um, Mildenhall. So we got a couple of days oh, in mm-hmm. United Kingdom on the way to Saudi Arabia while we waited for our diplomatic clearance. And then the following year, I went to Spain uh, on the way to Saudi Arabia again. And then another, the following year after that, we went to, uh, oh, wait, after Saudi, the Christmas, uh, I went to Greece, to the island of Crete. That mm. was Operation Restore Hope, the Operation, uh, the humanitarian airlift in this uh, Somalia. Yeah. Uh, so we were doing the airlift or the airlift support aerial refueling as the planes came out of Mogadishu, refueled them on the way back to wherever they were going. Okay. So I deployed like three days before Christmas to uh, the island of Crete. Tough assignment. You know, the island of Crete in Greece in the winter. Wow. That was hard. It was hard. Does this snow there? What was that? Does it snow in Crete? In the 8,000 foot mountains, yes. Okay. But we were staying down in the beach town. So we drove to the snow to go sledding on Christmas Day. And then we came back to the beach that night. Oh, um, right. 
So it was a beautiful assignment, but it was hard because, um, you know, it was my first Christmas as a married person. Uh, my mom, my brother were already visiting. My husband had just moved up to where we were stationed. <laughs> then I left. Wow. <laughs> so that's the moment I felt like I was a military person, right? Yeah. Um, but no, so that was okay. So Greece, Spain, Saudi Arabia, Turkey, and then we had assignments in France um, I did a four month tour with NATO in Italy as a, a combined air operations center. So in the battle staff during mm -hmm. the Bosnia Herzegovina conflict. So, you know, lots of places in Europe and then, um, Asia, we would fly a lot of cargo to Japan, to Korea. Uh, we'd go up to Alaska and then I did a whole Pacific tour taking general officers around like a VIP flight. Yeah for two weeks taking ad, you know, new admirals and new um, generals to their future command sites. So we went to Korea, multiple bases in Japan, Singapore, Malaysia, Indonesia, it was amazing. So now I've, um, and then I did a, an embassy job uh, down in Quito, Ecuador because of my language skills. Oh, nice. I got assigned to be a, a liaison officer in the embassy. So I think it's something over 22 countries. Something wow. like that. That's beautiful. So, yeah, I, I got my wish. I, I found my <laughs> way to see the world, right? Yeah, you, you, you got the full package there in the military. <laughs> we, we have but a meme I, I need, for the Navy that says, study. join the Navy and see the world. And then right. the second meme says, they don't tell you that you see plenty of the of water when they say see the world you'll be looking at staring at water see the, for world. Months. <laughs> <laughs> see the world's oceans see the world's oceans yes but you know what the really special thing about that was i was able to take my parents with me when i was working in nato yeah uh my husband flew with my parents to venice because i was there almost five months at that assignment so my husband came out halfway through and then we you know ran around like took a couple of days leave but at the end of the tour he came back out with my parents so I got to take my mom and dad, you know, from Mexico, who had never been to Europe before. Wow. I got to take them to um, Austria, Germany, a bunch of castles, to Milan. And then we road tripped all the way through Italy, through Tuscany, and, you know, the, stopped in Florence, and we stopped in Rome, and we went all the way down to uh, Naples and the island of Capri. So that is something that, as a daughter of immigrants, I'm so, that is one of the most gratifying things for me. Yeah, I got to see the world, but more importantly, I was able to have enough of a discretionary income with a professional salary and access to the world that I could bring my parents over and show them the world yeah, as well. Yeah, you were able to share it with... That's know. important to me, that very, like, you know, the least I could do for them, everything they did for me is to show them some of the magic that I get to do as an Air Force officer and aviator, just bring them and show them. And that makes me really happy when I think about that, that they've had that opportunity. That's great. That's, yeah, that, that's, yeah, that's a whole different, uh, it, it, it makes it look. Um, it, it presents a different view to the whole traveling around the world when you're able to share it with people who, it, you know, it means a lot to, because, you know, it, it's one thing to experience it on your own, which is great. But when you share it with family who haven't been able to experience it and they get to share with you, it adds, it makes it extra special. You know? Well, you, you interview a lot of people who, immigrated from somewhere else, right? Yes. And the immigrant dream is defined many times, you know, the, the American dream as 
you know, coming here and making a better life, whatever that means to you, right? Mm -hmm. And for some people, it's buying a house for your parents, right? For some people, it is getting your education, right? Because they couldn't from wherever they came from, like in the case of my parents, you know, they, my dad was not allowed to continue education beyond third grade. They put him to work, yeah. you know, my mom finished high school. So, so you want to get your education because they couldn't. So everybody defines how they feel like they've reached that dream differently. Yeah. For me, it was, and I never had to buy a house because they already did that. Uh, I was going to get my education for me, not for them. <laughs> you know? so, so it was never that for me. For me, it was always that, that, that world. Cause I felt like my world was so small and their world was so small yeah. that I realized that what I really wanted for them was to travel. And so we've also taken them to Hawaii for their 40th anniversary. I mean, that, that is my American dream is bringing, opening my parents' eyes, you know, like that's what I wanted to do for them. And they've loved it. They've loved all the adventures and that I think that's, that's the dream. And maybe for listeners and for people who are, you know, starting their journey in this country, maybe that'll be an inspiration. You know, like you save your money and you make your choices so that you have a career that is globally mobile, like mine was. And then it makes it easier to get your passports, get your parents' passports and just go. So I hope that inspires people to, to want to do that for their parents and their family. Yeah. And that's the, the multiple ways to travel now. I know with the pandemic, you know, we're not talking a lot of traveling right now, but afterwards there's, they're going to be begging people to travel anyway. So, right. yeah. um, yeah, so there will be opportunities. Um, yeah, it's a beautiful. It's a beautiful way to make memories together. Oh yeah, yeah. That that's the the, the main, the most important thing that I, I, I was. I'm, I'm I'm just picturing right now. I'm like, yeah, not nothing beats that. Nothing beats that. Right. It's just, yeah. It's it's just, it's something that I know when my daughter gets older, I would like to, you know, show her places and you know, yeah. make some memories with her. I'm like, hey, see. You know, yeah. so experience places with that and say, all right, you know, you know me, me, you and your mom, you know, and sometimes with uh, the grandparents, we all go yeah. together. And if um, uncles and aunts can come along, fine. And, you know, yeah. but it's just beautiful to do something like that. that, that yeah. To me, that, that, that's, that's the dream. Right? That's the dream for me right there. So, yeah. Well, I know you'll get to do it. I know that you will. <laughs> something you already want. So I, 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 I know you'll do it. You'll find a way. Number, how can I? Right? Yes. Thanks so much for listening to this episode. This is the end of part one. Uh, due to the interview being so amazing, we decided to make it a two-part interview. So come back next week for the second part and hope you enjoy it. Thanks for listening to White Label American. If you enjoy the show, we'll appreciate if you rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcast from. If you have any questions, comments, or have someone who will be a good guest on the show, or you want to be on the show, send us a message at whitelabelamerican at gmail.com. And make sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at White Label American. Thank you for your support.